So we're going to go ahead and jump into God's word. Let's seek him in prayer and see what he has for us today. Father, thank you, Lord. We can gather together, worship you, praise your holy name. Pray that you would forgive us of our sins, Lord. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Guard us from the enemy. Unite your church, Lord, in love. Encourage our hearts today. Strengthen our faith in you. Help us, Lord, to fix our eyes on you. We pray for the church around the world, Lord. Our brothers and sisters, that you would strengthen your church worldwide. That they would continue to persevere in the faith, Lord. Those who are being persecuted and thrown in jail. Those who are starving, Lord. We we forget about our brothers and sisters. And your word tells us to remember them. To remember those who are in prison as if you were in prison yourself. So, Lord... Just pray that you would strengthen your body, that you would encourage us, Lord. Help us to fight the good fight of faith, to take hold of eternal life, to be the men and women that you've called us to be um, during this time, during this day, Lord. Help us to be like a city on a hill. Help us to shine brightly for you. Help us, Lord, to live out the gospel wherever we're at so that they may see our good deeds and glorify you, our Father in heaven. So be with us, Lord, during this teaching. Bless it. Encourage us strengthen us, and empower us to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. title of today's message is A Journey Back to the Psalms. So it's no, I guess I'm giving it away. We're not in Colossians today. Maybe next week we'll pick that back up, but we're in the Psalms. I did a couple teachings through the Psalms some months ago. I meant to give five teachings. I think I stopped at three. I got sidetracked with a bunch of other things, and we jumped into Colossians. And the Lord put it on my heart to teach a psalm today. And we're commanded, actually, in Ephesians 5.19 to speak to one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melodies with our hearts to the Lord. I mean, the book of Psalms, 150 chapters, had a significant place in the early church. And I believe today many are missing out on the psalms. Um, when you look at all these issues in the contemporary, if if that's what you want to call it, the contemporary Christian music industry, you have, you know, artists deconstructing and some are unable to call sin, sin, and some admitting to getting into this Christian music scene for fame or popularity. Um, it was pretty sad to hear when the Hawk Nelson singer, I followed Hawk Nelson for years, the lead singer, he finally just came out and said, okay, I'm not even a Christian anymore. And towards the end there, he goes, I'll be honest, like I, I, I wasn't even really following Christ. I wasn't a Christian, singing these songs, touring. And now he's, I think, an agnostic or an atheist. And you hear about these stories and, um, you know, they didn't have to deal with that as much in the early church. They had the Psalms, primarily the Psalms, and they sang them and they meditated on them and they, they knew them. And today many in the church don't know the Psalms because we're swept up in the other music that we have today, which many of the popular music that we have, a lot of it, I still listen to. There's as long as it lines up with scripture, right? And is biblical um, to each his own. Let that conviction be between you and the Lord. But for the first several centuries of church history, it was first and foremost the Psalms that captivated the church when they sang and worship to the Lord. Listen to what um, Philip, Philip Chaff, um, a church historian stated. He said, so far as we are able to gather our sources, nothing except the Psalms and a few New Testament hymns was a rule sung in public worship before the fourth century. 
It long adhered almost exclusively to the Psalms of David, who, as Chrysostom says, was first, middle, and last in the assemblies of the Christians. It was the early church father, Jerome, in the 4th century who said, quote, Wherever you turn, the laborer at the plow sings Alleluia. The toiling reaper beguiles his work with psalms. The vine dresser, as he prunes the vine, sings something of David's. I believe, as I've said, if you're not reading, if you're not meditating, if the psalms aren't part of a, if they're not a normal part of your worship and memorizing scripture, then we're missing out on something great. It was encouraging to hear a couple weeks ago, I asked the guys in the men's group, I said, can you give me a verse or a text or a book that's been encouraging you lately? And some of them were like, well, what season of life? Because it depends. If you asked me 20 years ago, I'd give you this book or I'd give you maybe this chapter. Uh, 10 years ago, this. Maybe six months ago, was really this verse was really hitting me. And so I said, maybe next time I'll ask that question. And then we can talk about at different periods of our lives what verses or which texts really have hit home with you. But the Psalms actually came up with several of the guys We're talking about the just the rawness and the realness of the Psalms, the transparency of the Psalms. And so that blessed my heart. And I, I, you know, I can totally relate. I've said Psalm 63, probably more than any other Psalm. That's been the one for me. And I encourage people, just grab a hold of a psalm, a psalm that maybe you can relate to in your life. And for me, at different parts of my life, it's Psalm 23 or Psalm 42, Psalm 90, Psalm 119. But Psalm 63, David in the wilderness, no water. He's, he's hungry, he's thirsty, and he says, God, I, I thirst for you. Above all, I, I want more of you, Lord. Your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. And so I've taken that psalm with me in different areas of my walk with the Lord in different places to where I'm feeling dry. I'm feeling dry spiritually, emotionally, and I grab a hold of that psalm, and it's been a great encouragement to me. Now, someone witnessed the revival in Ulster, Ireland in 1859, and this is what he wrote. He said, quote, the 23rd, the 40th, and the 116th Psalms seem psalms of power in the hands of the Spirit and imparting an indescribable joy. They are heard at the midnight hour, sung by bands of persons, old and young, returning from their prayer meetings. I think he was out on the balcony, maybe, as and just listening as people passed by, leaving this revival. They were all night in prayer and worship, and then on their way homes, they're, they're worshiping, they're singing in the streets. Psalm 23, Psalm 40, Psalm 116. I love what he says. He says these are psalms of power in the hands of the Spirit. Does anyone need power in your walks with the Lord? You know, we need this Holy Spirit power, this power that comes from all of God's word, but even today as I'm speaking about the Psalms, it's like ammunition for our souls to combat the sin and the lies, the temptations of this world. It gives us an indescribable and incomprehensible joy, which can be found through speaking to one another in Psalms, hymns, and and spiritual songs. So, Matthew 26.30 when you look at Matthew 26:30, one of the last things, and some people have missed this, perhaps you guys know this, one of the last things Jesus did with his disciples in that upper room, that last supper, the text says that they sang a hymn together. Jesus and his disciples, they sang together 
prior to going to the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives where Jesus was tempted. And you guys know the story. But what were they singing? What were, it says they sang a hymn. Many scholars, uni- almost overwhelmingly, universally, most commentators believe that Jesus and his disciples during that Passover service were singing Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. Because this is what the Jew- Jewish tradition was during the Passover. These were the psalms that were sung. And one of the last psalms that were sung were the Psalms 116 through Psalm 118. Usually Psalm 113 through 15 at the beginning of the Seder and then towards the end, the latter half of these psalms. One commentary states, There can be no doubt that our Savior and the apostles also used the same psalms in their observance of the Passover, referencing Psalms 113 through Psalms 118. I want to look at Psalm 116 today. Psalm 116. So if you'll turn there with me, it's a psalm of thanksgiving. It's a psalm of deliverance. It's a psalm of distress and sorrow, yet a psalm of salvation. My Bible, it states, a thanksgiving for deliverance from death. So imagine as we're reading this, Jesus and his disciples singing this prior to the Garden of Gethsemane and ultimately his death on the cross. Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I shall call upon him as long as I live. The cords of death encompassed me. The terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech you, save my life. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed when I said I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all men are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Oh, Lord, surely I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your handmaid. You have loosed my bonds. To you I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Now, certain psalms have names attributed to them. This psalm, in my Bible, and I'm sure in your Bibles, there's no name attributed. It doesn't say sons of Korah. It doesn't say David. It doesn't say Moses. You know, we know that 73 psalms are attributed to David. 12 are attributed to Asaph, 11 to Korah, or the sons of Korah, 2 to Solomon, 1 to Moses, 1 to Ethan the Ezrahite, 1 to Heman the Ezrahite, and then there's 50. There's around 50 psalms that there's no name attached to them, and this is one of them. Now, I believe David wrote this psalm. Many scholars, commentators believe David wrote this psalm. If we were to go down each verse of this psalm and compare it 
to other psalms, you would see overwhelmingly the, the bulk of these 19 verses are found either verbatim or very similarly in David's psalms. And let me just give you a couple examples. The first verse, I love the Lord because he hears my voice. Psalm 18, which is attributed to David, says in Psalm 18, verse 1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. Verse 2 here in Psalm 116 says, Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I shall call upon him as long as I live. Psalm 31, verse 2, another psalm of David, says, Incline your ear to me, rescue me quickly. And then we have here in verse 3, The cords of death encompassed me, and the terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow, again in Psalm 18, a psalm of David, verses 4 and 5. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surround me. The snares of death confronted me. And then one more, verse 4. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. Psalm 18, verse 6, In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. We're told that Psalm 18 was a psalm David wrote down after he was rescued from his enemies and from Saul. And it fits the context here of Psalm 116 that David is now looking back after 15 years or so. He was 15 when he was anointed king of Israel. He went back to shepherding the sheep. There was Goliath in the mix. There was all these other things. But 15 years after that, when he was 30, he finally was made king. 15 years of waiting on the Lord. And so here we see in Psalm 18 and these different psalms. And here, I believe in Psalm 116, there's strong evidence that David wrote this. And there's strong evidence that the greater David was singing this prior to his temptation and his crucifixion. I love how this psalm starts off. I think it's only two psalms that begin with this. I love the Lord. It's this in Psalm 18. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications. You know, my daughter, Mercy, who's two, is just barely talking now. She's just barely mumbling words. But I love when she says, Daddy, thank you. So like I'll bring her breakfast. or She goes, thank you, Daddy. And it's just so sweet. And then another thing is when she says, I love you, Daddy. And it's like, it just melts my heart. Because she can barely say it, but it's like, love you, Daddy. And it's just so precious. I just want to hold her. And it's been nice having her. Because Leland and Verity, they're kind of grown up now. You know, they, they want their space. So the last week they've been playing outside and they've been kind of doing their own thing. And me and Mercy are like little buds while Leah's gone. And so I'll just hang out with her and hold her. And the girl can eat all day long, by the way, too. So I'm just making her meals. I'm making her meals throughout the day. I go sit on the couch. She goes back in the kitchen and gets up on the step stool and grabs an apple. And st I'm like, I just made you like all this stuff. I mean, I've been giving her hot dogs for breakfast. Don't tell Leah that, but um, it's been fun. But, you know, she can barely mumble the words, love you. And that's, God wants that heart for us to him. He doesn't need these exquisite prayers. That's great if we have deep theology, if we know the word and we're, we're praying rich prayers. I'm not against that, but just to mumble the words, God, I love you. God, you mean everything to me. And in whatever way you can say that he looks at the heart. And so I love the psalmist here. He's boasting. He's, he's telling everyone, I love the Lord. The Lord hears my voice. He hears my supplication. I'm going to call on him because he loves me and he hears me. It's beautiful. 
And that's how we should be with the Lord. Psalm 31, verse 23 says, Oh, love the Lord, all you his godly ones. The Lord preserves the faithful and fully recompenses the proud doer. When you're going through Psalm 119, starting at verse 48, the psalmist says, I love your commandments. He says in verse 97, I love your law. He says in verse 119, I love your testimonies. Verse 140, I love your word. But above all, Psalm 116.1, I love the Lord. We love his commandments. We love his word. We love his testimonies. We love that he hears us. We love so many benefits that we have from him. But most of all, we love him. We need to tell him we love him. We need to tell other people that we love him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. That's Mark 12:30. Every part of your being. This is at the heart of Christianity. This is what it means to be a Christian is loving God with every part of your being. We can get so sidetracked with so many different things in our walks with the Lord. Many things which are good. And so many churches can get sidetracked with so many things. So many programs. And it needs to come back to loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of us need to pursue that. And so the rest of this psalm is built on this premise. That God hears his children and he's worthy of our love. God hears his children and he's worthy of our love. Do you remember the story? the story, the account in 1 Kings 18. There's Elijah on Mount Carmel. You remember the, the false prophets? Here's Elijah. He says, choose, he, he tells the king, bring, bring everyone out to Mount Carmel. It's like this, this battle, this, this massive show, if you will. He goes, I'm going to put God on display. He goes, you bring out the false prophets and I'm going to come and I'm going to show them that God is real that God is true, that God deserves our faith, our devotion, our love. And so you have these false prophets of Baal. They're calling out. Elijah says, okay, you call out on your God. You make an altar. You make a sacrifice. You call out on your God. And then when you're done, I'm going to call out on my God who answers by fire. We're going to see which God answers, okay? So all of you, Israel, as you're watching this, just take notes and see which God answers, okay? And it, the text says all day long, these prophets are crying out to their God. Hours go by. It's midday. There's no answer. Now they start jumping up and down. They start slashing themselves. They're bleeding out. Th they're doing whatever rituals they can for their God to answer. Nothing. Nothing. And this is what Elijah says in 1 Kings 18.27. Maybe your God is occupied. Maybe he's gone aside. Maybe he's in... Some translations, is he in the restroom? Is he on a journey? Is he, is he asleep? Come on, where's your God? Keep calling out on him. He's, he's just taunting them because of the foolishness of them worshiping idols. This idol God, Baal. And then finally he says, okay, my turn. And I love what he does, if you know the story. Puts the sacrifice on the altar and he says put water all over it everywhere just put water all over it and they're like okay we'll put water all over it that's weird why would we do that no put go again put more water on it i think he says even the third time put water on it again drench everything Be i'm going to call on the god of fire w what does fire not burn i mean what do firemen firefighters put on fires yeah so i'm going to call on the god of fire 
well, you just you just soaked this. So there goes that idea, Elijah. And he goes, watch this. He And he says, answer me, God. Verse 37 of 1 Kings 18. Answer me, O Lord, that this people may know that you are Lord, that you are God, that you have turned their heart back. See, they're not loving you the way they should. They're not following you. They don't have faith in you. Turn their heart back to you and answer me. He's pleading with the Lord. And what happens? Fire comes from heaven and it melts everything. It consumes the burnt offering. It consumes the wood. It consumes the stones, the dust, all the water under the offering, everything gone. And imagine there as an Israelite, you're standing there watching that. That's going to change your heart posture towards God if you have a pulse. So God used Elijah to remind these people that God hears his children. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our love. I want to show you in the text today, I want to look at a fourfold progression of the godly man in this psalm. And I'm going to be, I'm going to be referring, as we we're just walking through this a little bit, to David. So even though it's not attributed to him in our Bibles, I believe so strongly so that when I'm sharing this verse or that verse, I'm probably just going to say David. You know, this applies to David because that's, I believe there's strong evidence for that. Now the fourfold progression that I see in this psalm is number one, he's a distressed contender. He's struggling. He's contending. That's number one. Number two, he's a humble beggar. Number three, the humble beggar turns into the mindful theologian. And then number four, it closes with David being a devout worshiper. And so let's look at point number one. He's a distressed contender. He's, he's competing internally to keep the faith, to keep the love, to keep the joy, to keep the praise despite being greatly afflicted. And if you can't relate in any point of your walk with that, contending with sin, contending with temptation, struggling in this walk with the Lord, then as I've said before, see me after. I'd like to talk to you. Okay? Because I haven't met a person yet. If you're a Christian, you are going to be contending. Now, maybe you're not going to be continually knocking on death's door like David here. You don't have maybe King Saul pursuing you on a daily basis trying to kill you. But you have other temptations. You have other struggles. You have other things going on in, in your life to where you're contending. You're fighting the good fight of faith. You're abstaining from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. You're like a salmon swimming upstream in the current of this culture that's constantly going against you. The values, the mindset of this culture and the way people are living. And you're saying, no, I'm different. I'm a Christian. There's going to be a cost with that. And so what I love about the Psalms and this Psalm is that he is transparent. He's real. And I, I say when I read these Psalms, amen. I, I feel in a much smaller sense of what you're going through. And I, I love the wrestling. I love the transparency. I love the rawness. And I love the answers that are given. One way you and I can find victory in your Christian walk is by linking arm in arms with those who are struggling in similar ways as you. How re refreshing and encouraging it is when you know someone who's going through the same thing you're going through or has gone through the same thing. They can relate. They know what it is you're going through. But when you're pouring your heart out to someone and they go, oh, I, I've never really been there before, or you're going to be okay, it's not that big of a deal. You're kind of like, oh, they just don't get it. They're, they haven't gone through what I've gone through. 
But with those who have gone through the battles and the warfare, if you will, of life, you link arms with them. It, it, it strengthens you. It gives you courage. It allows you to see things more clearly and move forward in the Lord. And that's what we need to do. We need to grab a hold of people in Scripture that have gone through similar things that we've gone through in life. And that's the Psalms. They've gone through the struggles. They've gone through the trials. David's knocked on death's door. So whatever struggle that you and I are going through, he can say, yeah, I can probably relate to that. You go, yeah, but it's this. And he's like, yeah, I had Saul breathing down my neck every day trying to kill me. I, I can relate a little bit to what you're going through. And so it's helpful to meditate on these types of scriptures. In verse 3, he says, I'm, the cords of death encompassed me. The terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. The NIV says the anguish of the grave came over me. He's knocking on death's door and what's there? He finds something. He says, I have found pains and sorrow. It's kind of fitting if Jesus was singing this prior to the Garden of Gethsemane. What did Jesus find in the garden? Betrayal. Betrayal not only from his disciples who he said, can you just pray with me for one hour? He went back to them three times and they're sleeping. His closest friends, those whom he needed the most at that moment, the biggest trial of his life, and there they are sleeping. Would you just pray with me for just an hour? So the betrayal has already begun. Then there's Judas who betrays him. But prior to that, Jesus is wrestling, Father, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, your will be done. Matthew 26, 38, he says, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. He tells his disciples, remain here and keep watch with me. Hebrews 5, 7 tells us that Jesus offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. So here's Jesus about to be the contender. Here's Jesus about to struggle in that garden. And who's he linking arms with? He's reading David. He's meditating on David. He's meditating on Psalm and singing Psalm 116 of a man who went through something similar. Jesus is the son of David. He's the Lord of David. David's a picture of Jesus to come, the one who was anointed, the one who's king over Israel, Jesus, who's anointed with the Holy Spirit, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. See in verse 10 and 11, he says, I believed when I said I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all men are liars. Isn't this the crux of the issue? Here's the heart of the struggle. I believe, like the man who came up to Jesus, I believe yet help my unbelief. My faith is being tested right now. I believe when I said I'm greatly afflicted. It's like I believe in you, Lord, but man, I am going through it right now and I know you're there. In my head, I know you're there. In my heart, man, I'm struggling to truly believe it. Now this text in verse 10, it's quoted by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.13. It's after he says that famous passage, 2 Corinthians 4, 8, and 9, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. So Paul's going through it, and he says, we believe, therefore we speak, quoting verse 10. I believed when I said, I am greatly afflicted. Paul's saying, I'm greatly afflicted, yet I still believe. I'm still going to boast in the Lord. I still love him, and I'm going to fight the good fight of faith until my dying 
breath. So I believe David is recalling as he's on the run from Saul, and we see this in 2 Samuel 22, which is also repeated in Psalm 18. It's almost verbatim, 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 18. Those 50 verses are almost identical. And that is a psalm and that is a text of after David was rescued from the hand of Saul. And so he says in verse 11, I said in my alarm, some of your texts say in haste, I said in haste, I said in trepidation, all men are liars. Why would he say that? What does that mean? I said in haste, all men are liars. How does that fit the context? Some believe David's referencing Samuel. Samuel anointed him to be king, right, at age 15. Imagine year after year after year, you're still not king. You're 20, you're 25, 10 years later, and not only are you not king, but you're having trial after trial after trial, and you're on death's door. Saul is about to kill you, and now you're starting to wonder who to trust. It's as if everyone has abandoned him at different times during that 15-year period, and now he's going, has Samuel lied to me as well? That's what some believe. You know, he anointed me king, but it's 12 years later, I'm not king. All men are liars. I don't trust him. I don't trust anyone. Other commentaries believe he's saying during his great affliction that no one came to his aid, no one sympathized with him. Could he trust anyone? Therefore, all men are liars. Who can I trust? One commentary states it this way, quote, This is not an unnatural feeling in affliction. The mind is then sensitive. We need friends then. We expect our friends to show their friendship then. If they do not do this, it seems to us that the entire world is false. So that's what David's going through in the midst of this trial. It's as if everyone's lying to me. Who can I trust? But of course, he turns to the Lord. Point number two, the distressed contender becomes the humble beggar. Verse four, then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech you, save my life. Who saved him from the lion and the bear? Who saved him from the hand of Goliath? Who saved him from the thousands of the enemies? Remember when they were chanting in the streets, Saul, Saul's killed his thousands. David's killed his ten thousands. He had some places of victory during those 15 years. He had some moments of escape from the enemy. And who gave him that escape? The Lord did. So here he is again calling upon the Lord the only faithful one, the only one that he could trust, God. And he says in verse 4, I beseech you, at least in the, NI, in the NASB, the word beseech, it's Anna in the Hebrew. It means to implore. Lord, I implore you. I pray, Lord. I beg you. It's the same Hebrew word used in Second Kings 20. Second Kings 20 is when the king Hezekiah was mortally ill. It's an interesting text. The prophet Isaiah goes to King Hezekiah and he says, get your house in order. You're going to die. God has told me, Hezekiah, it's time for you to die. What was Hezekiah's response? 2 Kings 20, verse 3. He cries out to the Lord and he says, remember now, O Lord, I beseech you. Anna, it's the same Hebrew word used by David here in verse 4. I beseech you, Lord, I beg you, I implore you how I walked before you in truth and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And the text says that Hezekiah wept bitterly. Humble beggar, pouring out his heart before the Lord. 
Do you remember what happens? God responds, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Behold, I will hear you. I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and the city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. God heard his prayer. He heard his tears. He heard him begging for mercy and God granted him 15 more years. It's awesome. God loves when his children call upon him. He hears their prayers. He'll answer. Psalm 51, 17. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 147, 3. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Isaiah 57, 15. God says, I dwell in a high and holy place and with the oppressed and humble in spirit to restore the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. I love James 4.10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. He will lift you up. It's a promise. I did a teaching some maybe months back. I don't know. I think it was titled, What is a Christian? And I thought I was going to give like 50 points during that message. I was just going to go through all of the things that characterize a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? Let's walk through the whole scripture. And I said, never mind. I'm giving you a one-point message. It's just one point. Humility. Every Christian is humble. Now, some of us struggle with it, and some of us, we can go up and down, and we can see pride creeping in. But every Christian, you, you can't be a Christian unless you humble yourself before the Lord. Jesus said, if you don't humble yourself like one of these little ones, you will not enter my kingdom. You have to turn from your sin. That's admitting I'm a sinner. Like one politician said, I've never done anything wrong. What do I have to repent of? I don't, it's like I've never sinned. You may know who I'm talking about with that, but you have to humble yourself and say, you are God, you are king, I am not. God gives grace to the humble. He rejects the proud. And so David says, I'm humbly begging you, Lord. Save my life. Deliver my soul. I need your help. Can you think of any prayers in scriptures, any entreaties where the, to where the humble person was rejected? Can you find anywhere in the New Testament where someone humbly comes before Jesus and they're begging him for something and they're pleading with him and he goes, get away. Someone was doing that. I think it was a Syrophoenician woman. One of the women was coming to him and he goes, I, no, I, I'm focused on Israel. I'm the savior of Israel. Like I came for the lost sheep of Israel. She was outside of Israel. And she goes, yeah, but Lord, even the, dog, even the dogs get the crumbs, Lord. I'm just, she's admitting, I'm just like a dog. Like it says of the man who sat at King David's table. He goes, I'm just a dead dog. What do you have to do with me? I was going to say his name is Melchizedek, but it's not Melchizedek. It's something else. It's a hard name. It'll come to me. But he goes, I'm just a dead dog. And there he was. David says, you're going to sit at my table. I'm going to feed you of the choicest foods, even though you're my enemy, even though you're of Saul's family. And so that woman, she went to Jesus. I'm, I'm but a dog. And he says, what faith you have. Wow. Story after story, text after text of people with a contrite, humble heart 
where their prayers are answered. Does that mean it's always going to be answered in the exact way we want? That it's always going to be answered right then? God will hear our prayers. How many prayers do you think David prayed over 15 years of not being king? I mean, after year one, Lord, okay, I'm 16. I think I'm ready. Answer my prayer. I'm ready to be king. Okay, 17, 18, 20, 25. Wasn't until he was 30 to where finally God says, now's the time. And then David can look back after all those years and say, God, hears my cry. He hears my prayer. It wasn't in the way I wanted. I'm sure he would have loved to have been king much earlier. But he needed to wait on the Lord. That's part of trust. That's part of true faith. That's part of true love is waiting on God's timing. And that's so hard. We want everything right now. But trusting him and knowing he's good is saying his timing is better than my timing. Number three. The humble beggar then becomes the mindful theologian. What does it mean to be a theologian? It's very simple. It's one who studies God. We can use this high and lofty language. Man, that man's a theologian right there. Six PhDs, Cambridge and Princeton and Yale. We need to look to him. That's a theologian. I submit to you, every Christian is a theologian. We all study God. We all need to know God more. Increase in the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. You don't need PhDs to be a theologian. You just need your Bible open and the Holy Spirit to help you grow and know who God is. So David says here that he knows his attributes. He knows who God is. And the, the, the humble beggar and the theologian, I think, coincide because you need to know who you're begging. You need to know who you're crying out to. You need to know his attributes. You need to know that he hears your prayer, that he hears your cry. So David begs and he cries out to God because he knows God is good. He looks back at his past and he sees how God has answered him time and time again. And we need to remember that as well. When we're going through something, Lord, how many times have you answered my prayers? How many times, Lord, when I was up against the fence and you are a fork in the road, Lord, and you directed my steps and you spared my life? and you granted me grace, and you granted me love, and you granted me maybe a person that walked alongside me, Lord. He's working in so many ways. We need to trust him. Can you imagine crying out as a humble beggar to like a Stalin or a Hitler or, or a Pol Pot as they're decimating their kingdom? They're just ruthless dictators. Are you going to waste your time going before them and begging? You're just wasting your time. Because you know that they're not good. You know that they're not kind. You know they're not merciful. You know they don't, they don't care about you. It's all about themselves. The more you know who God is, the more you know his attributes, the more security that's going to bring to your soul, the more it's going to grow your faith, the more it's going to grow your love for him, the more you're going to cry out to him and beg him. And as you're crying out and begging, whatever it is, according to his will, you're waiting on him. And you're going, Lord, I've, I've seen, took David 15 years, Lord, I've seen in Scripture how people cried out to you and you did answer their prayer, but it wasn't always that moment. It wasn't always the answer that they wanted in that moment. But David could look back after being a king for 40 years of Israel and say, wow, the Lord is faithful. Thank you, Lord. He says in verses 5 through 8, let's just read them again here quickly. Gracious is the Lord. Look at these attributes. Gracious is the Lord. Righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt 
bountifully with you. You have rescued my soul from death. He says God is gracious. God is righteous. God is compassionate. He's a preserver. He's a savior. He's a rewarder. He's a deliverer. So it's good to put on your theologian hat, so to speak, when you're going to God in prayer, when you're crying out to him. Look at Psalm 113, if you will, quickly. Verses 5 through 9. It's just one page over probably in most of your Bibles. Psalm 113. I love verses 5 through 9. And this would have been the, the text that the disciples and Jesus opened up to first during the Passover and sang together. Verses 5 through 9. I just want to look at those. It says, Who is like the Lord our God? Who is enthroned on high? Who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. King James, I think, says dunghill. Others say the garbage, the garbage heap. Verse 8, to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people, and makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. That's our God. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's compassionate. He humbles himself himself. He comes down to the lowly, to the weak, the overlooked, those who are in the dunghill, the garbage heap, the ash heap. He picks them up. He puts them in high places. He seats them in heavenly places with Jesus Christ so that we will rule and reign forever. Need to remember these things. I find myself saying that a lot lately. Remember this. Remember this. Maybe I'm just saying that to myself. I don't know, but we need to remember these things. Back in Psalm 116, I love verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Imagine Jesus singing that. He's about to be crucified. He's about to give his life for the sins of the world. And he's saying precious. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. One commentator states of this verse, quote, though death is a curse and an enemy, it's still precious because it removes the remaining barriers between God and his saints and is the doorway to an eternity perfect of perfect fellowship. Death to the saints is not a penalty. It is not destruction. It is not even a loss. I love that. Death is just a doorway to heaven. It's just the absent, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's just one step closer to true joy, true peace for all eternity. Remember Jesus in Acts chapter 7, pretty much the only time in Scripture other than the lamb slain standing in Revelation where Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father. This is where I see this illustrated best. When Stephen is being stoned to death and he's crying out, Lord, forgive them. Don't hold this sin against them, Lord. And there's Jesus standing in heaven. That's my son. Precious in my sight is the death of godly saints. Matthew 10, 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? The very head, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You're more valuable than many sparrows. So God knows his children intimately. He knows our suffering. He knows our pain. And when we die, it's precious in his sight. It's no wonder in 1 Peter 2, 4, 
that Peter states that Jesus, though he was rejected by men, he's precious in the sight of God. And he goes on to say in verse 7, he's precious to you who believe. Jesus is precious to us, and our deaths will be precious in the sight of God as we keep the faith. So the distressed contender becomes the humble beggar who becomes the mindful theologian and who finally becomes the devout worshiper. Last point, if you're still with me. Number four, the psalmist is the devout worshiper. Good theology always leads to good worship, or at least it should. The more you understand who God is, the more you're in awe of him, the more you just want to worship him. It's like Peter who's on the boat with Jesus, and he got to know Jesus a little bit. He doesn't really know him that much yet. And Peter's, he tells Peter, okay, cast the net on this side. Yeah, but Lord, we haven't really caught anything. Just listen to me, Peter. Okay, boom, I can't even pull up the net. He goes, whoa, I'm an unclean man, Lord. Just you showing me that miracle, I know more about who you are. I know your power. And now I know who I am in light of that. Now he's in awe. And the more Jesus revealed to his disciples in the next three and a half years, the more awe they had of him, the more love they had for him, the more their faith grew because they knew their Savior. The more you know who God is, how much he loves you, that he's good, that he's compassionate, it just drives you to your knees. You become a devout worshiper. Or you just take in all that head knowledge and you somehow, I don't know how, but you somehow put it off and just keep living for yourself. Good theology should lead to being a devout worshiper. I love Psalm 46, verses 1 and 2. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change and the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. What do we have to fear? Our God is a refuge. Our God is a strength. He's in control. He has all authority. What can man do to me? That's the mindset we need to have. So David is now able to see through the, the haze of all the afflictions that he's gone through. He's probably looking back and saying, okay, I said all men are liars at that time, but I realize, you know, I had Jonathan, who was a close companion. If you read the texts of the Old Testament, his, his father and his brothers joined him on many of his campaigns as he was fleeing from Saul. But man, there was times where it just felt like, man, can I trust anyone? And so here now, David, on the back end, he's looking back and he's able to just have a strong faith. He's able to say, man, I'm living in the land of the living. I'm looking forward to the land of the living. I'm looking forward to this future salvation. And he says twice, I'm going to offer my vows to you. He says in verse 17 through 19, I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people in the courts of the Lord's house in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord or hallelujah. He goes, I want to tell everyone about how good God is. He didn't feel like that when he was in the midst of the trial, but now that he's out of it, he goes, I not only want to pay my vows and do all this, I want to make sure that people can see it so that, that it could grab a hold of them too. You know, when you're praying, when you're living your Christian walk, people are watching you. I've seen people in church raising their hands and praying, and it's almost it's brought me to tears. I'm like, wow, that's encouraging to see that someone else is pursuing the Lord right now. 
You ever walked in a church, you're kind of feeling down, you're bringing whatever it is that's going on out there and here. You see other people encouraging others. You see other people worshiping. You, other, you see other people with this contrite heart before the Lord and you go, wow, that touches my heart. And I believe that's what David's saying here. I want other people to see my joy. I, w- I want people to hear my testimony. I want, I want people to know how, God, how good God is so that it'll grab a hold of them too. And together in unison, we can praise him. We can rejoice in him. We can move forward in the faith together so as I get ready to close here on a lighter note next month um, is my brother Tommy's wedding he's getting married it's pretty cool it's hard to say because he's always been so much younger than me and now he's getting married and when he was out recently we were talking about the wedding vows and we were kind of just looking over wedding vows I get the honor of officiating his wedding which I'll be at in a couple weeks it's coming quickly we were talking about his wedding vows we are looking at these vows, and those of you who are married will know some of these. Will you, so-and-so, take so-and-so to be your lawfully wedded spouse, to love and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, sickness and in health, to love and to cherish as, bo- as long as you both shall live. It's as if you can add all these things in there. And you say, I do, and you walk through all these vows to encourage each other and to lay down your life for the other person and for the wife to respect her husband. And they're, they're much easier to say than uh, to do, right? Anyone can walk down an aisle and say things. Now it's like living it out year after year after year. That's the hard part. That's where the Holy Spirit comes into play, right? And I just thought about we can take our vows seriously with the Lord for those of us who are married, or at least our, our vows with our spouse. And David's saying in verse 14 and in verse 18, I shall pay my vows to the Lord. David made vows to the Lord. And it could have been early on. Maybe when he was first anointed to be king, he made these vows to the Lord. Lord, I'm going to do this for you. Lord, thank you so much. I'm going to do this. And perhaps during all the trials of his life, maybe he reneged on some of those vows. I don't know. But he says here in verse 14 and 19, I'm going to pay my vows. I'm going to honor the Lord. I'm going to hold to that thing that I vowed to the Lord, and I'm, I want people to see it. And that's why I've mentioned recently, like, look back at your baptism. Look back when you first came to the Lord. Remember that heart? Remember that fervency? Remember how you were like, Lord, I want to follow you. Lord, instill that same fire, that same drive in me. And that's what we see here with David. So Jesus, the greater David, he vowed to do the will of the Father. His vow was, Father, not my will, your will be done. Whatever you want. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. John 6 or John 4, 34. My will is to do the will of him who sent me. That's my work. And to accomplish his work. Whatever God says to do, I will do it. And so we need to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Endure as he endured. He despised the shame. Scripture says he is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. He's our ultimate example. He deserves all praise, all worship, all glory. He deserves our life. And we love him because he first loved us. Amen.